following program is paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees. This is KQEN Local Talk at 4. Every weekday, News Radio 1240 KQEN brings you local information at 4 o'clock. Now, True Wealth, presented by Little John Financial Services. Here are David Little John and Katie Shook with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the True Wealth Radio Show. I am your host, David Little John, in studio with me, Katie Shook. And we are ready for another rocking edition of the True Wealth Show. Uh, stoked to be here on a regular Tuesday. It is a regular Tuesday. Right? Regular Tuesday, uh, no weird guests, no three-day weekends, not the first week of the quarter. No crazy nothing. thing in the stock market today, or at least not that I'm Totally aware of. crazy. Yeah, there's no stock market suck today. It's a technical term. <laughs> um, Although I do have something cool to share. I don't uh, okay. know how it came about, but um, I must have said something like, oh, after the radio show and... Uh, Melissa, my daughter, looks at me and says, you're actually on the radio? And I go, yeah, like I'm on the radio. She was like, I can listen to you in the car. And I was like, yeah, I'm on the radio. And all of a sudden she got these like stars in her eyes, like my mom's on the radio. Like how I got like the coolness factor times 10. It was awesome. Very well. I know. Even though I was like, well, it is talk radio and I'm pretty sure you like music. So I'm not sure that you want to listen to talk radio at six, Mm -hmm. but you could. It was kind of fun. She was like, wow, my mom's cool. Yep. I'll take the coolness factor anytime I can. Run with it. So there you go. Well, look, uh, if you are paying attention to the markets, I will tell you today was a day of pain, right? So market's down a little over 1.5%, so not very fun. Uh, in the scheme of things, it rolled us back two days, right? So we're kind of back into the territory we were at on October 3rd because we had a weekend in there. So it's the 8th, take a couple days out. Uh, it's the old two steps forward, two steps back game, right? Um, that's not particularly interesting or remarkable or anything else other than frustrating. So you are looking at your statements, wondering why can't we get any traction? And I will tell you, uh, probably by design, and this market may struggle to get traction. Until after, do you think it's going to last through the election? Like, uh, you know, this is a really hard one. Uh, like, do you it, think it's, so you don't think it's political based at this point? Oh, no, I think there's a massive amount of politics going on. Uh, and I think there's, uh, you know, headlines are not necessarily motivated exclusively by the news right now. Uh, I mean, let's just, we'll what? just call it what it is, in my opinion at least, which is there's a ton of tribalism going on in our country right now. It's kind tribalism. of tribalism. Yep, your team versus my team, right? Ah. So people are divvying up and they're choosing a team. And I think a lot of the media resources have done the same. Okay. Right. So you just kind of know, okay, well, we're catering to one team. And when we do, and maybe it's not one team, but it's like the team that it or these, one agenda these issues, right? So, uh, it, whether it's politics or news, but really it doesn't need to be politics; it's advertising, right? If you think about a media organization that's funded by advertising, then they need to know who their demographic is that they're that you can target through that organization. Advertisers choose media based on who they want to see their ads. True. So the media needs to figure out who they're appealing to, and then the advertisers can support the market that fits what they're trying to sell. Right. And or vice versa, if you know that the, you know, if you know you sell a widget that applies to Group Blue, and they talk about Group Blue all the time, then why wouldn't you go pick that specific thing? Like you know, the automatically well, you have ears and eyes. 
as you know, your because your customer needs to be in that audience. Right. That's the way advertising works. It's pointless to advertise to a group somebody that's, that's not, not your customer. Right. Right. So, or not ever going to be your customer. So if you if you consider that, okay. then the news has its own agenda. I mean, if 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 your team has picked one thing or another, then you know you can also oftentimes see that. I mean, I will I will use a case in point. Um, Bloomberg Media. Now, I'm not picking on Bloomberg. I'm just going to give you some observations about how they operate. Uh, If you go read lots of headlines, uh, Bloomberg, by and large, is not big fans of the current president. Okay. Now, it's evident in the headlines because that's like every headline sort of says where, uh, you know, Trump messed up or Trump did this, Trump did that. Well, you know, Bloomberg was Mayor Bloomberg, and it's the same Bloomberg from New York. Uh, and he and Donald Trump personally don't get along. They have different belief structures, and they don't get along in well, real life. And I so, say they've probably <laughs> clashed many a time right, with so, a business transaction or two. So yeah, they're not, not fans of that. each other. It's I mean politically, they just have different ideologies, and so this isn't really a shock. I mean that's kind of how they are structured, and so. I'm not really wagging my finger at Bloomberg saying shame on you or or or, or you know smiling and cheering for Bloomberg. I'm just saying that's what they do. Right. Right. And so you kind of know where the media oftentimes falls and if they have sort of one tilt or another, it's generally because they're catering to an audience and that's part of what happens. So why is that important to our listeners and to our investors, though? Like who the advertisers? Well, it's it's to. relevant. It comes back to you, you see you 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 started the question though. Like, what do I think is going to happen? And, you know, and economic data is still okay, but we are going to reach a point of self fulfilling prophecy. And there is now the elephant in the room is the discussion about trade war. Right. right. Trade wars are really the biggest economic concern out there because. Uh, we can get into the economics of it all, but one way or another, the consumer pays for taxes. Okay, they because tariffs, which are taxes, right? So tariffs are a manipulation of the cost of something, right? So that's that is going to affect where the supply and demand curve crosses because when you change the cost of something, it changes the demand. Right. Right. If it costs more, then if demand de- and if demand is down. well, if demand is elastic, then the that would mean that if the cost goes up, you will sell fewer. If it is an inelastic demand, meaning that everybody needs it regardless, like power, right? You uh, you Gasoline. raise yeah, you raise power a lot. Well, people will do what they can to save on gas. They'll take fewer trips and so forth. The same way they'll turn off lights and try to save power, but they can only do so much. Right. So like those are those are less, or what we call more inelastic demand. People really rely on that stuff, as opposed to ice cream, right? <laughs> uh, it, you Depends know, you on love which ice cream, you talk to. <laughs> but if ice cream costs too much, you will substitute chocolate or something like that. It's true. So that's kind of the issue. Now, how does it apply to the big market picture? Great well, question. If we have a trade war going on, it's going to structurally alter pricing. And a lot of times we think, so going back to your ice cream example, right? You're thinking of the whole container of ice cream, but what you don't realize is there's many different parts that go into creating that container of ice cream, right? Like there's the container itself, the printing, the actual stuff inside. So like we always think of stuff being made in one spot, but it a lot of times we pull resources from around the world to make different 
products. Right. Right. Like, I mean, it may not be the cost of the dairy, but it could be the cost of the packaging that goes up with it, which then causes your cost of ice cream to go up. If they're getting the packaging. Sure. It's kind of like when fuel gets more expensive, the cost delivery goes up. The cost of goods ultimately reflects that. Uh, And, you know, companies absorb it in profit margin to a degree. But even UPS or FedEx will do like a fuel surcharge in periods of extraordinarily high fuel prices. Right. Right? I mean, those those sorts of things happen. Uh, What it does, though, is it changes the dollars available to go to different places in the economy. Okay. Okay. When you give a tax cut to somebody, the idea is that you are leaving more dollars in their pocket to discretionarily spend. But what happens if they don't spend it? Like if they're so worried well, about it. Well, if they save it, it, then it you know goes into a bank and gets loaned out somewhere else. Okay, that's fair. Right? Uh, but otherwise, they spend it as a consumer in the economy, buy goods and services, and those goods and services kind of keep the engine spinning. Uh, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying certain parts of it, but not much. Right. right. I mean, it, it, acts, it acts a lot like this. Uh, with with a trade war, it's changing input costs, which changes price. And that change in price changes spending habits, which does have a ripple through the economy. So the, we have conflicting data, right? We see manufacturing is slowing. Uh, the, the, the trade war with China is changing the cost of goods. There are some uh, the, probably intended consequences and unintended consequences. Okay. Right. Some unintended consequences are things that weren't expected to happen, and there are things like, "Hey, you know what? What if we start building iPhones in the United States?" Oh, okay. Right. That would be an intended consequence. Hey, let's just make tariffs so that it's no longer competitive to ship your product in in so from China. So just build it here domestically. Now, it's there's a lot more variables to it than just pure cost because there's a lot of training and infrastructure and other things to consider in that cost formula. But there's a reason so many companies manufacture offshore and then bring it back, right? I mean, our well, yeah, yeah. it's regulation and hourly wage it's, and the cost of the dollar. It's and mostly regulation and wage. I mean, those are the two primary things because American labor is good labor, believe it or not. I mean, oh, if you look at productivity and what uh, the American labor force produces, it's it's strong. It's just expensive because we have lots and lots of regulations to comply with in terms of things like. Oh, little details like you know, workers' rights and uh, <laughs> safety, and you know, minimum wage. Sick I mean, those are all days. elements that go into the cost of labor. Right. So when it can be farmed out, it is. Well, the tariffs do change that because the equation looks different coming back, and so some companies are revisiting where they manufacture. Maybe it's not China. Maybe it doesn't come back to the United States. Maybe it goes to another country besides China. Be interesting to see if like Vietnam gets more or sure. some other little, yeah, Indonesia. other little holdouts. Uh, but but that's it. And if you think about domestically, the the challenge is always well, what businesses can outsource labor and which ones can't, because that's what really starts to change the way things operate. You know, if you can't outsource labor and now you have a minimum cost to labor that's sort of established by the government, then you you've now artificially manipulated variables and the marketplace will adapt. Right. Right. And so it will make other things more expensive or it will eliminate service jobs. And now you see kiosks at McDonald's and robots and things like that. I was going to say, they, they find out how to automate more of it so that you need less yeah. physical so, bodies. So, so let's talk about all of this in the application of the market today, because that was the original question. <laughs> it <Okay>? was. <laughs> the original question. I'm, I'm See, today I'm the one trying to stay out of the I weeds. know. Uh, the original question is, what does this mean looking down the road? Uh, what it means is, 
first of all, uh, we still have things like uh, very strong unemployment, meaning that the unemployment rate's really low. So people have jobs. Uh, wages have been slowly but steadily climbing. Okay. Uh, so those are good signs that the economy is working. I mean, that's a very direct sign that it's working. We have low inflation, right? Things are not costing much more. Like fuel is dropping. I know. Thank God. <laughs> okay. So, so we see a lot of major input variables dropping. Not everything's dropping. Some things are still getting more expensive. True. Right. You know, uh, they they don't include food and energy in CPI. Well, food is one of those that's getting more expensive in many cases. True. So, we have a dichotomy within the economy. Uh, where do I think it's going? This is you just have to take kind of a scientific wild guess, right? So your swag event here says there is. Let's let's just call it what it is. I mean, we know that politically we have uh, factions, and there are some factions that are highly interested in removing the president. Right. Right. I mean, it's, I'm not sugarcoating anything. I'm not trying to uh, pick a side per se. I'm just saying like that's what's going on, and. They're going to do a lot to make it look pretty ugly and really highlight the stuff that's bad and make the economy look bad and make the whole world around us look bad. Because what they know is that, historically speaking, as the economy goes, so does the national election, typically. Right. Right. So if the economy is in expansion, so if that's the case and not in recession, then the majority of the time the incumbent, incumbent president is reelected. Oh, there you okay. go. So what do you do if you want to derail that? Make it look really bad, gin up a, whether it's real or not. I'm not saying gin up, but I mean, if you're going to strategically use uh, the discussion of. Um, or make it look bad enough that it makes people question their vote. Right. But if, if you're going to strategically use, I mean, this is a good strategy, right? Hey, let's do an impeachment deal because, and, and it may be that there's really something there. Or, or maybe not. maybe there's not enough, but but if we can just get people talking about it, that's enough that it can kind of create some toxicity and make uh, elections more uh, unseatable. Like being able to right. tip, in and one so the other is you have to start worrying. Now I've always thought this is a really silly thing when you want to sink the ship that you're on. Like you think it's somehow in your best interest to sink the ship that you're the one sailing, but. There are those that would like to see the economy falter because they want an exchange of power in the White House. Again, I think you're cutting off your nose to spite your face, but that's sort of what I see is it's very hard to get clean data because it's highly editorialized on either side of the aisle. Uh, what I am seeing is still pretty strong economic data for this marketplace, but I am seeing chinks in the armor. And if I had to look out all the way into next year, and we're talking a year out until election time, uh, I think that there could be enough chinks in this armor that it could manifest as a real issue. So how the trade war goes is going to be really, really important. Interesting. Very, yeah, very yeah. interesting. So, so here's why this whole conversation is relevant today and relevant for this show. It's a time of risk in the marketplace, or at least a time of perceived risk. What does that mean for us as investors and how we manage the risk? That's a, Well, there we go. Right. I think that's the question we're going to answer and next. And so we're going to answer that when we come back. You need to figure out, okay, it's risky. How do I navigate it? We, we've got some insight for you. Stick along. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN.
This is KQEN Local Talk at 4 on News Radio 1240. KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Uh, Dave Littlejohn and Katie Shook here laying it down. And he was waiting for me to get back in my chair. I'm sorry. I, plus, I, she was I like drinking water and having a you know buddy pal outside the studio. I was doing a water cooler chat. We don't have a water cooler to hang out at at our office. I wonder why. <laughs> we still find plenty of places to have chats, but <laughs> we don't need the water cooler. It's not yeah. that big of a landmark no. in our office. We have a, we have just a filtered water in the fridge. What do you need a cooler for? Um, so let me tell you where this comes from. I want to talk today a little bit specifically. This is kind of about younger investors, although it's applicable to all of us. And uh, there was a study, and you can check this study out for yourself if you've never been to this website. It's actually really a great site in terms of just educational content. Investopedia.com. There's been times when I've pulled info off of Investopedia. Like, it's good. Investopedia is a really good website with lots and lots of information. And so there's a study conducted on... Um, millennials and how they invest. And I'm not going to cover everything, but I'm going to cover some highlights because I find it fascinating how this works out. And I think it's really appropriate that we understand this stuff. And I say we, I mean, like again, all of us as investors, but here's the one of the biggest takeaways. And again, this is right there. If you go to investopedia.com, uh, there's a survey on how millennials uh, view their finances. Um, and the key takeaway uh, there's there's two of them. One of them is totally selfish for the financial services industry. There's, there's a really important takeaway, and, and I'll, don't worry, I'll share it. Uh, <laughs> but the other one is one that I think is just observational in general, and that is these uh, millennial investors are they are when they are they don't feel confident in their investment knowledge. They consistently, as a group, invest in really conservative stuff. So what when you say conservative stuff, what kind of stuff are you referring to? Uh, CDs, annuities, bonds, that sort of uh, traditional conservative to even ultra conservative investments. So I'm going to use a different word than conservative. I think sometimes they hear that they're safe, right? Like we talk about risk reward and we talk about safe. And I think that word safe gets thrown around a lot in that generation. Like what is safe versus what is risky? And I don't think they fully understand or define the word risk the same way we do working in the financial industry. Yeah, well I've I've talked about risk as a four letter word. You know, it's and <laughs> and because it's all monkeyed up, it it has lots of different it has nuances. A lot of negativity to it too. It can. I mean it's you've heard all of the little, you know, catchphrases and stuff, oh no risk, no reward and different things, but it also assumes that you can lose it all. And I think people have heard horror stories from others, from older generations about, oh, I had all this money in the market and I lost it. And I think, so they're they're looking for safe investments. Yeah, I think safe is a good synonym for what they're using here. Uh, and again, I'm just gonna add to that the comment on risk. Here's one of the things that I think folks miss is there's this definition of risk that we typically associate in just everyday language. Right, you know, we understand risks to be things that are dangerous, right? I mean, that's that's just if I if I say, "Ooh, careful, that's a risky move," 
yeah. then what that means is, oh, you're going to take a risk, you know, driving in the snow, or you're going to take a risk going whitewater rafting, or whatever it may be. Like, there's danger associated. There's a with lot it. of negative connotations attached to it. Yeah, but I'm not talking about the the psychology implications. I'm just saying that's just regular use of the term risk. Right. And in in the financial world. Risk has all of these different statistical nuances, right? It's a descriptor that's no longer a uh, purely a danger association. Risk can mean a function of volatility, how much something swings up and down in a typical range. But that still sounds kind of like danger to me, right? Like volatility yeah, but that, is you're still borrowing another... from it. Am in my I? opinion, you're borrowing from everyday language and applying it to statistics, and it's like that's not what statistics are telling us. That's why there's this disconnect. I think the average person brings the word risk into their financial world thinking of it like everybody should think about what risk means. And that's not what it means in the financial world. Right. Well, and and so when we do risk assessments at our office, um, one of the common themes that comes up, right, we talk about loss, but we also talk about gain, right? Like when we talk about a risk assessment um, and where, how much people are willing to tolerate, toleration is another word, um, but people always say, well, I don't want to lose any money. Well, nobody ever wants to lose any money. Nobody ever says, oh, I want to go invest so I could lose a bunch of money. Like I have yet to meet that person. Right. But I could say, you know, low beta stocks are a lower risk. Okay. And, okay. See, and what that, does that mean? That, that to me means they're safer to do. Right. But what does it actually mean? What did I just say? I, it means stocks with a low beta have lower volatility relative to the index that they are being compared to. Okay. So it means they swing up and down less. Okay. okay. So as investors, it tells us, okay, well, then I am less likely to have exaggerated movements up or down in value because I have a lower statistical volatility measurement. But we call that risk. Right. Right. And that's not the same definition of risk. And it's not. And it's and, and I you know, we talk about the upside. Right. And, and I mean, I, people come in joking like, hey, I'm going to give you, you know, ten thousand dollars. Turn it into a million overnight. You're like, yeah, OK. And I'm like, we're, we're going to we need to get a really lucky string at the casino. <laughs> but it's but there's there's a difference between sacrificing upside for safety and kind of the type of risk I think that we're talking about taking, right? Like talking about actually analyzing the data, looking at how everything's performing um, and taking an educated, st not stab at it, but taking well, coming it, from an educated point versus just kind of getting fearful and going, oh, well, this is safe. So maybe I should do this. So let's, let's use, let's pick up on where you're at with this one, because I think that you're, you can clarify a little well, more kind no, of where I'm going with you're this. You're flirting with all the truth of the survey and where I want to go. You know, you're <laughs> flirting with it. It's really cute. Oh, uh, thank you. So you've got fear. Right. Right. You've got risk, which we've already said ha it gets it has way too many nuances in finance. Right. right. Uh, and then you've talked about safety. Uh, but but fear is the big one, and there's this emotional component, and education was another. Right. And the word that I originally sort of hinted at was this concept of confidence. Yes. Okay. Now, what the survey shows is that the lower an investor's confidence, the more likely they are to seek the safe or risk-averse investment. Now, risk-averse actually can work both ways. Risk-averse can mean, oh, it means safe. It also means more conservative, lower volatility, 
they're much more synonymous when you start to add descriptors to risk. You start bolting on to the term to clarify it, right? right. So it's not just snow. It's wet snow. And it's <laughs> n- not yellow snow. Oh. Uh, so, the, the, so what we see is this group of, and, and millennials in particular, uh, what, what we see is that they take less risk statistically, meaning they, they take fewer chances or they, they, they have a more conservative investment strategy than Gen- Generation X, which is older than them. Well, but I would I would make the leap to say that, you know, if you're older, then the assumption is that you have more knowledge or maybe more experience in what you're uh, investing in. I, I'm careful about that. I'm not going to try to draw the link between saying, well, Gen Xers know more than Gen than the, than the millennial. millennials. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that if Gen the millennial generation doesn't have a financial education, what we're seeing is they invest really conservatively. Now, we could talk all about the why, uh, but to me, that's a little like a dog chasing a car, right? So okay. even if you catch it, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, so we just know they do it. All right. All right? Uh, now, so what does that mean for like the investors then? Are, are they doing something wrong? I think they are. Oh, okay. Right? When- I really do. I think that millennials are doing something by accident. And I think that, and I've seen this in our practice. Right. Okay. So one of the things I've seen, we have a formal process by which we help clients figure Assess out their risk. Yeah, it's it's a risk assessment, and we we take them on a. It's a test that sort of. And and by the way, if you are curious about the test, you can totally do this. Yeah. Right. You could try this test on yourself. You could go to our webpage at littlejohnfs.com, and there's a thing that says, "What's my risk number?" Right. And right. at the bottom, it looks like a honeycomb. Yeah, it's kind of orange and white, and it and, and it's got this uh, almost looks like a road sign with a number on it. And so if you click there, you can enter some very basic information. We're not going to ask for a, like a whole lot of identifying information. It, it, we do need an email because that's how we communicate your risk number to you. It's not actually embedded in the website as like a live frame. It has, you know, it's a report that gets generated. But... Uh, we don't spam you or sell your email no, or any junk no, like no. that. It's just that if you want to take the test, so that's kind of the cost, but it will let it will give you a grade on zero to one hundred. Right. And you know, a person at a hundred is like, you know, hot dog. Let's like push all the chips. <laughs> Have on you the had table. anybody hit a hundred? No, I don't even know if you can. I think the highest I've ever seen is a ninety six or ninety seven. I thought it was 98, but yeah, it was like maybe, high 90s. Maybe high 98. High 90s. I mean, I that can tell you, you, you can manipulate. <laughs> it's, I'm not even that high. Uh, but but that that's a really interesting point. Bring that back. Bring okay. back my risk score in a little while. We'll talk about that Versus too. my risk score. Versus yours. Which I have an interesting story about that. So whatever the case, you can go and check this and, you, and we grade on a curve, right? And then what I can actually do or we, our team can do, is we could say, well, let me see the investments that you are, are working with. Oh, and, yeah. and we, we can, can actually say, well, risk. here's what your risk score is. Here's the investment risk. That is the most fascinating thing I think we do with our clients because they've come in and they said, oh, I'm, I'm very risk adverse. I, I'm conservative. And then we find out like they're in the most yeah, no, risky you're not. investment. Yeah, right. like, yeah, you're telling me you're a 35 on the test and you got like an 89 on your on your right. investment. So, you're, so you're misaligned between your your heart and your head, right? Right. <laughs> so we, we can help with that because we can quantify some of it. And uh, here's the thing. I've seen a lot of folks that are younger folks, right? And they'll come in and... Oh, they'll be like a 20 or an right, 18. Right, right. You know, I'm somebody who's 22 years old and they're scoring 18 on the test. I go, that doesn't 
make a lot of sense. Yeah, like why? Why es- are you being so ultra conservative? Right, especially if this is a retirement plan where you go, you realize you can't touch this money for over 30 years. Yeah, you got some time. And you're putting money in every month. Right. So, so you got buying power. Right. So if you can't touch the money for 30 years, that tells us something else as investors, something like really significant that every every listener should know this, right? Okay. What is it, David? It's the thing that I tell you after this break. Ah, I got to stick around. Stick around. And we're going to go. Every investor needs this next piece of knowledge. All right. Uh, so... I'll have you waiting when we come right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. This is KQEN Local Talk at 4 on News Radio 1240. KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn. Oh, I love the deep voice. And Katie Shook. Although right. my voice is just getting deeper as I get older, it's more raspy. Oh. At least to me, it maybe my hearing's going. <laughs> maybe I just can't hear oh. my voice anymore. I think my voice gets to. lower when I have a cold. Ah, uh, you get the sexy voice. <laughs> yeah, I'm channeling Barry White. So, uh, wasn't look, that the Phoebe from Friends thing, right? Like she had like the, the deep, sexy voice because she was sick, and then all of a sudden one day she cleared her throat and it was gone, and she was like so upset because she had this. Do you remember that one from Friends? No, I didn't Sorry. watch a ton of Friends. I'm mean, not to be like that person that's like, oh my gosh, you culturally for like out. a week she had this like Janis Joplin like heavy, sultry, and then all of a sudden like she cleared her throat once and it went away, and she was like, oh no. Oh, no, she was freaking out, but that's besides the point. 80s <laughs> right. pop culture. Here we go. There you go. So, uh, so if you can't touch y- yeah, the money, catch up on the podcast, and we're going to bring you back to where we are, which is that we're looking at this survey of millennial investors. And I promised all of our listeners that held out through the break that I was going to tell you this one key piece of data that every investor should know, especially millennials who oftentimes, apparently, according to this survey, La- lack- feel like they they lack confidence because they lack education and they seem to invest more more conservative than is probably wise for their age. Okay. Okay. So here's the interesting piece of data. Now I'm going to use the S and P 500 as our example. And why do you use that as a benchmark? For uh, them? It's the 500 largest U.S. stocks. They typically trade globally. It's a cap weighted index, and it's a really common benchmark. Okay. Right. So it's just kind of a good. We could use other versions. We could look at the Wilshire 5000 or something. But the S and P we happen to have pretty good data on. Okay. So uh, since we have been recording data. Here's the thing. Now, I talked about a millennial that's that's in their 20s, and, they, and we talked about we have this technology where we will grade somebody on a curve and we sign them a number of zero being super ultra, bury it in the backyard, tell no one where it is, conservative. Which even that has risk. But right. Okay. To 100. the 100, which is, you know, I think that we should bet on a chimpanzee riding a space shuttle to Mars playing roulette. I, I don't know, right? Whatever it is, it's that crazy. <laughs> Uh, they're ready to take that risk. Okay. okay. So super speculative to super hyper paranoid conservative. And we can 
quantify that, right? So you get a, a young investor, maybe they're in their early 20s, and we see a risk score down in the you know 20s. Right. And what we know is that statistically, that's really, really low. Right. And almost unnaturally low. And we so, actually kind of flag them and then sit down and have a deeper conversation. Yes, absolutely it's, we do. It's, we, you know, when something seems out of balance or not natural, kind of in a line with your age or your kind of your where you're at in life, um, it, it raises a flag. We just don't go, oh, okay, that's a score and that's what we'll do. We're not a machine. Like, we want to really dig deeper yeah. and find out what's going on. It tells me something as an investment professional. Usually what it tells me is probably not what you think it tells me. Oh. I, right. It doesn't tell me, oh, no, something's broken or wrong or anything else. What it usually tells me is that this person has not had a lot of it's you kind of get two things. One, the person is pretty serious about their money. Okay. And two serious in what way? Serious, meaning oftentimes they are interested in being savers. Uh, It's real common sort of Dave Ramsey cult trait i don't mean that in a negative way no 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 but just yeah but you know the the folks that fall super frugal super saver uh you know good budgets all that and so the the manifestation is in this really conservative posture but it's somebody that wants to be conserved with their money but hasn't been educated particularly on investing okay okay so i see that a lot so what this is is an opportunity to bridge an education gap so we sit down and i want to have conversations about talk to me about how you arrived at these answers how did you make the decision when you were taking uh our evaluation yeah uh, and like, how, how did are you we, feeling how yeah, are you like, but 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 it's really with a very specific you know give me the why behind how you answer these because i need to understand what makes you tick because here's the tricky part of what everybody should know uh the the S&P 500 is all stocks, right? Okay. And so stocks have higher risk than the other uh, traditional fixed income investments like bonds and so forth. And some of them are for very mechanical reasons. You know, uh, a bond is a loan. Loans are collateralized. If the company goes bankrupt, the, the person with a loan actually gets to get in line with all of the other lien holders that that company has and when they start liquidating stuff they get reimbursed even if it's pennies on the dollar they get something back okay the stockholder gets nothing right right if the company goes under you're left with zero so you have the law the potential for a full-blown catastrophic loss as a stockholder and while that is a potential for bondholders it's not supposed to be because you're in a different place in a capital structure okay so you have a different risk profile so that's the biggie. So stocks are historically the highest risk category. And some stocks are higher risk than others, right? The, the new stocks that are unproven, those are the ones that are higher risk than the stalwart blue chips. They don't have a track record chips. yet. Yeah. You know, the S&P 500, I know of only one time that had you invested in the S&P 500 for, five, or for 10 years or longer that you would have not made a profit. And that was a period from 1998 to 2008. And had you invested at all the wrong times, or it might have even been like February of 1999 to February of 2009. Okay. Because the bottom of the market was March 6th of 2009 before the last big dip ended and then everything went up from there. And that was 10 years ago. 
For a lot of us, 10 years ago, we, I mean, we still remember the pain of 2008 and that market implosion. Well, and especially if you lost your home or anything else in that. Right. And so a lot of millennials were watching their parents experience this pain. And so that also shaped them. But again, we're not going into the psychology of this. I'm just saying that was a 10 year period where had you invested in the S&P 500, you would have been negative after 10 years. You know what would have happened in year 11? What? The S&P 500 rallied by like 46 percent in 2009. So it just went gangbusters. Yeah, it was a huge year. So in that one year after everything had sold off and sold off and sold off, you would have still popped and made money by the end of that period of time. Crazy. Crazy. So the 11-year period was profitable. Besides that, I don't think there's ever been. And so if you're 22 years old and you can't retire until 59 and a half with your, and pull money out of your retirement, so you've got 30-plus year time horizon for your investments – there's not been a period in history where you'd have lost money investing, just putting your money in the S&P 500 and going to sleep for 30 years. Right. Well, and let's talk about putting your money away, right? Like, we didn't talk at no, all. Let's talk about, there's one other thing you need to know about this S&P thing. What else do I need to know about the S&P thing? You've outperformed inflation, bonds, CDs, all of the asset classes. So if they just bought the S&P 500 index, like just, a, they, they just got an index fund and said, I'll just ride the wave. Right. And just I'm just going to hold my breath for the next 30 years and just ride this thing out. There, I don't think there's been a time. And maybe some fact checker out there can find it and say, nope, you're wrong. You if know, you say, it, nope, you're wrong, please contact yeah, us. We show me. Know. Because I, show don't, us the data. I don't think there's a time in history where you wouldn't have had outperformance above everything except for maybe instead of being in the S&P, you could have been in some like specific sector of the stock market. Like, well, no, you should have been in tech or you should have been in, right. you know, staples or whatever it may be, <laughs> a subsector of, but you're still in stocks, right? right? Maybe you should have been in small stocks instead of big stocks. Well, yeah, they're higher risk. You'd expect higher return over 30 years. But that's the point is that if you get ultra conservative, you can ultra guarantee that you're not going to get the returns superior returns over time. Right. You're like robbing yourself. Yeah. Of so some you of the... will ultra lock in a, a rate of return. And in some cases, after adjusting for inflation, doesn't doesn't go very far. Right. So you this all can be managed through better education, understanding what the heck you're getting into. Which but, is why... Seeking education is super important. It is. Because w- w- the other thing that is fascinating about the study is uh, it says that millennials that have more of a financial education and the younger they are, the better it works. Like So before the age of 15 or after the age of 15, if they're taught younger, they have a higher degree of confidence than if they're taught later in life. And so the sooner that somebody gets the education on how this stuff works, the more likely they are to apportion risk differently and be more successful investors over time. See, I think our clients get this because they've asked us to speak to their children. Oh, yeah. No, this is the thing. <laughs> we don't have enough. I don't think it's the audience for this program, but I, I will. we've been going round and round about this. I, it's really kind of on my heart to develop a bit of a, an education for are just for young people in general. I mean, I'd love it if I had the opportunity to get in and do like an exploration course at maybe the sophomore level of high school, somewhere about there where you could come in and say, listen, you know, what we need is about, uh, you know, maybe like two weeks or come in for, this is kind of like that shout out to economics teachers and so forth that, uh, you know, if if we could come in and do maybe uh, like one day a week 
for six weeks and then have a quiz at the end of it and maybe do a little bit of an investment uh not a contest. I think that's uh, counterproductive because you get trading contests. That doesn't work. You want like good Stock foundational picker. stuff for a longer term to, to really cement the good concepts here. But uh, that would be, I think, a really cool program to help get some of our youth grounded in the way economics work and some knowledge about finance that we all Need. Like everybody out there needs this knowledge. You need to know how the system works, right? Because you're stuck in it, right? I <laughs> yeah. mean, like whether you want it or not, it's it, there. it is here. Yeah, no joke. All right. Well, we I think we're up against our last break. Yeah, we are. So uh, we'll grab it. We'll grab the last break, and when we'll come back, just a couple more thoughts, especially for you parents trying to help your kids get launched on the right path. Uh, so we'll do that more when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. We got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEA. This is KQEN Local Talk at 4 on News Radio 1240. KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio, radio show. show. Not a program, because it's a show. It's more entertaining. It's edutainment. Is Edu- that what you call it? Edutainment. Edutainment. Sure. Little education, little entertainment. Maybe. A little salt and pepper in there, too, for spice. Tabasco. Tabasco. <gasps> I don't want my mouth on fire. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, it's, it's 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 not like salt. I think I burned out half my tongue, but that's okay. <laughs> Earlier in the show, we talked about risk score, and we were talking about riskalyze and some of the other tools we utilize in assessing risk score. And we were joking around about who had the highest risk score. You definitely had the highest one in the office, but did you ever have the highest one overall, or did somebody ever score higher than you? Do you oh remember? yeah, no, people have definitely scored higher. Um, I think the highest I've ever scored, and I've taken it. More than once, of course. I think the highest I've ever scored is about a 93 out of 100. Uh, and it won't really go higher than that. I'm actually like a natural 86 or so out of 100. And, well, and the reason I kind of bring it up is my risk score actually came in in the 60s, which is moderately aggressive, but not super aggressive. It's pretty, yeah, it's it's pretty of, chill. It's kind of in the middle. and But yet, educationally... <laughs> Like, you know, having conversations with David, working in the office that I work in um, and looking at the investments, I take more risk than my test score. Well, the first test score that you ever took was lower. And then you've taken it again and got a higher score. And what happens every time you take the test, you come in a little higher. But I don't. Actually, like the last couple of times we took it, you were like, wow, that, wait a minute. And then we actually had to sit down. And I think I took it two or three times when I sat down with you yeah. the last time. And part of it is because, you know, again, separating the emotion and the the logic behind it, right? Like, Knowing what you think you should do and then feeling things about money. It's, it's a interesting process. Yeah. And I'm, I don't really, I'm not a good example for the test. 
right? And I'm not a good example because I understand the way the analysis is literally crafted. Like I know what it's doing. As as I was taking the exam, I could figure out that each question led to a different question. Uh, it was a triangulation process of plotting somebody on a on a curve. So right. this grading thing was about well, let me pick: is it higher or lower? Okay, is it a little higher or a little lower than this new spot? How about this other spot? And we just kept zigzagging back and forth until you sort of zeroed in on where the the number ought to be, and. I can't take the test emotionally, even though that's what most people do. They kind of look at it and go, ah, that just feels like that wouldn't work for me. But that one feels about right. And that's an interesting word that you use, right? We've talked about specific words that we use. Mm -hmm. Feel. That feels like me. Now, why would you say something like that feels like me if you're logically trying to be educated about the process? Well, this goes back to something that is dear to my heart. I mean, I actually gave a lecture on this, and it's that the way that we think is sort of wired interesting. Uh, logic does not behave simultaneously with uh, a, emotion. In a, a, like a stressed emotion specifically. So if you're in a high stress environment, sort of a fight or flight-ish environment, you do not use logic, you do just response, right? So you come up with a response. And what happens, especially with money when it comes to the ups and downs is that tends to be a stress point. So a lot of people, don't approach it necessarily from a very logical perspective. It's much more feel than it is think. Right. And so the test is designed to take that into account, right? Uh, when So when we do this, you know, I, I actually like to watch somebody take the test because everything from when, the way they talk out loud about things to which answers they choose and so forth is a very informative to me as an advisor to see how they're making the decision and what is more pervasive. Sometimes it's logic bound, sometimes it is not. So seeing the way they process the decision is really helpful. The ones that are fascinating is when we have a couple sitting side by side and they start taking the test based on what they think the other person thinks they should answer. Yeah, we've had that happen a few right? times Right, like so too. they've answered, like when they answered it themselves, the score came up completely different than when they answered it what they thought their spouse wanted them to answer. Yeah. Or if you try to get them to take it together and together. agree on the numbers. Right. <laughs> so it's it's a very useful tool for a number of reasons, but why am, am I lousy at it? Well, I have this tendency to compute odds all the time. So I'm real statistically driven in the way that I invest. And so I can look at a data set when I'm given a quiz and say, well, you could ask me for a fictional example, but I know that fictional example doesn't exist, so I'm going to apply kind of a real-world probability on top of it, and it skews the results. So I can end up with a really high risk score because I know that that's the way I can max out a return, but I have a different behavior for how I mitigate risk. So I'm not typical, but you would expect that from a professional you money manager that. after you know I'm, I'm approaching the 20-year mark in this business. So. Right. I should be more, you know, I should be disconnected a little bit from my emotions at this point. That, well, that's, that's an expectation. That's why process is such a, an important thing, right? right? To disconnect you from the emotions. But, but the other thing I wanted to bring up too was dollar cost averaging. It's something you've mentioned years over years on the show. Yeah, I mean that's just a. Well, Put money in over time, buy it on sale when the money goes down, and. Yeah, I mean this is more of a technique to just help people get over their. Uh, their fears that they're investing too conservatively it's a well if you're looking for rationale to invest more aggressively dollar cost averaging is nice because when the markets are going up you're still buying if the markets are going down you're buying the same dollar amount but it buys more right you buy it on sales so you, you accumulate more when the price is low and then uh, it, it balances itself out over time so it is a risk 
reduction strategy. But but it's I think the bigger takeaway today is so many people just misalign their risk profile right out of the gate because they let the emotions wag the dog or they let their lack of confidence wag the dog. So do you have an easy way for people to figure it out? Yeah, hit the website. And <laughs> if you go to littlejohnfs.com, you can check out the what's my risk score and you know just take the test. And, and if you want to explore it further, it's tough to do it on the radio. So give us a call at... 541-375-0898. That's it. So uh, anyway, that is all the time we have for today. So again, uh, if you want to explore it further, give us a shout. Uh, until next time, this has been David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. And you've been listening to The True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.